Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, I'm Simon Long, International Editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show the fading fortunes of European banks. Europe didn't get itself sorted out quickly after the crisis in the same way that the United States did. And New York City's $100 billion congestion problem. There's a joke this transport engineer told me this week. Should we walk or do we have time to take a cab? But first, you might have seen the family's name etched in stone in art galleries around the world. But members of the Sackler family are also behind one of the world's most controversial drugs. Shame on Sackler! Shame on Sackler! Shame on Sackler! Shame on Sackler! They're one of the wealthiest families in America. Several members of the dynasty own the pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma, which makes the painkiller OxyContin. It's an opioid that's twice as strong as morphine, and is often cited as one of the drugs primarily responsible for America's opioid epidemic, blamed for the deaths of thousands of Americans each year. Purdue Pharma is facing nearly 2,000 lawsuits in America because of OxyContin. Several states have successfully sued the company for deceptive marketing tactics. In 2007, Purdue Pharma agreed to pay $600 million in fines. And more recently, in Oklahoma, it reached a $270 million settlement. The most recent charges in Massachusetts and New York allege that Purdue Pharma attempted to deceive the public about OxyContin's addictiveness. They include documents from 2014 showing details of an effort called Project Tango to expand Purdue business by funding those addicted to opioids into their own treatment centres. Representatives of the family and of Purdue Pharma strongly deny the claims. I think the easiest way to analogize it is that it's kind of like the litigation that was brought against the tobacco industry in the late 1990s, except it's mushroomed. Barry Myers, the author of Painkiller, which examines the origins of the opioid crisis and explores the history of the Sackler family. I asked him to explain who exactly they are and how did they make their billions. Essentially, the three Sackler brothers, kind of the founding members of this dynasty, Arthur, Raymond, and Mortimer, transformed both the drug industry and the medical profession by making the interests of doctors essentially subservient to the financial interests of pharmaceutical companies. And in doing so, they kind of laid the seeds for this public health crisis we're now facing. So they did things differently from the way other pharma companies do things? Arthur Sackler essentially invented the entire profession of drug advertising, all the drug advertisements that we're surrounded by today, be be they on television, magazines, radio, what have you. They all trace their roots back to techniques that Arthur Sackler developed in the late 1950s and the 1960s. Furthermore, what they did is they turned doctors 
doctors, particularly here in the United States, uh, into um, shills, if you will, for drug companies by putting them on drug company payrolls. They basically turn the entire marketing of prescription drugs on its head. When I was working initially on Painkiller, which goes back to 2003, I was able to dig up documentation showing that Purdue Pharma certainly was aware of the abuse of OxyContin long before the company acknowledged it. Now what we're seeing through documents coming out in the litigation is essentially the hand and involvement of members of the Sackler family of pretty directly in the drug maker's operations. So Perry, what do you expect to happen next for the Sacklers? I suspect there are going to be a number of settlements. Uh, They're going to be paying more money from their vast fortune. And hopefully, eventually, uh, the truth will come out. What the Sacklers knew, what they did will become public. It may exonerate them. They may come out of this showing that they didn't do anything wrong. But if that were the case, it's in their power to produce internal documents. If the Sackler family wants to clear the air, this is their moment. Thank you very much. My pleasure. In a statement, the company says, The company accepted responsibility for the actions of certain Purdue supervisors and employees in connection with marketing OxyContin prior to 2002. Since that time, we've led industry efforts to help address prescription opioid abuse, and we are committed to addressing today's crisis. Suggesting activities that last occurred more than 17 years ago are responsible for today's complex and multifaceted opioid crisis is deeply flawed. As government reports state, today's increase of fatal opioid-related overdoses is being driven by abuse of heroin and illicit fentanyl. Purdue Pharma isn't the only company under the heat of extra public scrutiny at the moment. Corporate scandals ranging from Boeing to Wells Fargo have recently made headlines around the world. Patrick Fowles is our business affairs editor. I asked him about the Sackler-Purdue story. Well, one of the striking things is this scandal actually goes back a long time. So they've they've been selling OxyContin, um, the opioid drug that's patented and belongs to them, for, for really well over a decade. And I think the key thing to get across is that it is the, the, the Sacklers and Purdue are, are the eye of the storm, but there's a much bigger machine of American business that has been involved in, in the opioid industry that really needs paying attention to. And that includes other manufacturers who sell generic versions of this or you know similar products. And then there's a huge distribution system of wholesalers and pharmacies that also have done the retail business of distributing hundreds of millions of pills. So Purdue is in the the eye of this enormous scandal, but it's not the only company out there. Indeed, we've heard comparisons drawn between the pharma industry now and the tobacco industry, what, 20, 30 years ago. Do you buy that? In terms of the severity of the catastrophe, really, that's happened, I think they are comparable. Many, many people have died. It's caused a public health problem of the gravest kind, really, in America. There is a bit of a difference in terms of how much money the industry will end up being fined or or have to settle. And the tobacco settlement, after many years of litigation, I think was well over $100 billion. There was a, a sort of master settlement that the entire industry signed up to. The difference here is Purdue is quite a small company. It's made a lot of money. The families obviously appears to have become very wealthy from selling this stuff, but it is not a huge 
multinational business with you know a $200 billion market capitalization. So in fact, I spoke to one of the lawyers involved with this a couple of days ago. And I think the objective is to raise or seek to get damages or recompense from the Sackler family from Purdue, but also to go after the rest of the ecosystem of distributors and other manufacturers, many of whom are significantly bigger businesses with much bigger pockets. Indeed. And moving beyond this particular case, there are all sorts of corporate scandals going on, which you're writing about. What sorts of scandals? And can you see a thread that ties them together? Well, it is interesting. Scandals seem to sort of come in cycles in business. So if you go back to the late 1990s, there were the famous accounting scandals like WorldCom and Enron. And then obviously you had the financial crisis with lots of scandals. There seems to be a bit of a rash of them around at the moment. So there is the Purdue opioids case, but there's also Wells Fargo, which has been accused and I think admitted uh, making up millions of fake accounts. There's Facebook, which is inundated with claims of misconduct. Monsanto, the chemicals firm, is struggling with claims that one of its weed killers is deadly. And even Boeing, although the facts really remain to be fully established, is is sort of in the eye of the storm with the suggestion that perhaps it cut corners on safety with the, the 737. So it's an amazingly diverse set of scandals going on. But nonetheless, there might be some common themes, which is what we're exploring. Such as? The interesting question is, is America's always had this uh, sort of different approach to business. So you have the dynamism of the American economy with companies seeking to take on established wisdom, to push the rules, to push the boundaries, which is a good thing in many ways and why America's so innovative. Against that, you've always had three restraints in America. One is obviously regulation, but the other two are more distinctly American. It's litigation, so the threat of class action lawsuits and, and so on. And the last one is competition in the sense that if you really do badly by your customer, actually someone else might might win market share. And our sense is all three of those restraints on business may have weakened a bit over the last 10 or 15 years, which could explain why there seems to be an upsurge in kind of more risky behavior by businesses. I mean, it says something about the corporate culture of the individual firms, doesn't it? That they reward success in narrow terms rather than put piously doing right. There's a risk word bit to kind of nostalgic about that. So if you go back to the 60s and 70s, when America was a more corporatist place with businesses sort of signing up to the national good as one of their objectives, it was also famous for having terrible consumer standards. So the car makers in Detroit, in the words of Ralph Nader, the campaigner and former presidential candidate, were unsafe at any speed. And similarly, you know, an interesting side note is Scandinavian companies have always been famous for having a kind of inclusive model that considers other states. Stakeholders. At the moment, it's also the centre of an enormous money laundering scandal. So my sense is that the specific objectives of individual companies are less important than these bigger structural factors. And what about ownership, though? I mean, we're seeing Purdue Pharma family-held concern in trouble, and as well as a lot of huge listed companies. It's hard to generalise. And again, you know, I think anti-capitalists might argue that private ownership is an inherently unethical. But if you look at one of the biggest European scandals, Volkswagen, it has a significant government in Germany as, as a major shareholder, and it also has workers on its board. So I, I think you can have scandals in all forms of businesses. To me, it's not the corporate form that necessarily causes scandals, but more the kind of broader framework that society puts around businesses to try and temper their appetites for risk. Patrick, thanks very much. Thank you very much. And you can read more about these corporate scandals in the upcoming issue of The Economist. 
You can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Next, Europe's banks are in steady decline. Ten years after the financial crash, their power's been blunted by poor management, overcautious policies, and Europe's slow post crash recovery. They find themselves now in the shadow of US banks, who've recovered well to assume control of global capital markets. So how did these mighty institutions fall? And how can the decline be reversed? We're with The Economist's banking editor, Patrick Lane, who's writing about this in this week's issue. So, Patrick, how worried are people about Europe's banks? It's more of a nagging worry than than anything acute, I'd say, Simon. If you look at the commonest measure of profitability for banks, that's return on equity, it's only 6.5% in Europe, which is better than it was a couple of years ago but nevertheless is well below what investors require. The benchmark for that is about 10. And European banks haven't been near it for ages. American banks in the past couple of years have surged past it. And that lack of profitability is a worry, not just for shareholders. Okay, You might say, well, shareholders, they put their money in. They don't necessarily expect to get all of it back. But if banks can't meet the cost of equity, in other words, if, if they can't provide investors with what they want, then eventually their capital will get corroded and their capital cushions will be a bit thin and they'll be poorly placed to meet another downturn. For, it follows, I suppose, that this slump dates back to the last financial crisis and that banks have never fully recovered. That's, that's the root of it, exactly. And for two reasons, really. One is that Europe didn't get itself sorted out quickly after the crisis in the same way that the United States did. So the United States, in essence, reset its banking system. 2009, 2010, a big injection of money from government. Banks had to take it whether they liked it or not. The banking system was sort of put on a new footing. In Europe, though, it took a lot longer to realise really what had gone on. Also, banks were more slowly recapitalised. It was much more of a piecemeal response, largely because in those days, there wasn't really a coordinating entity in Europe to bring those things about. So that was the first reason. The second reason is that the European economy has been pretty slow to recover. It's been growing quite slowly. Inflation has been stubbornly low. So interest rates in the eurozone have been correspondingly low, depending on which official interest rate you take, either zero or minus 0.4%. So if you're a European bank, you have to pay 0.4% a year to deposit funds with the ECB. And of course, there's been all the other sort of additional quantitative easing measures that the ECB has taken as well. In Germany, of course, one response we're seeing is the proposed merger of two of the biggest banks, Deutsche and Commerz. Is that 
policy mirrored elsewhere in the Eurozone? Is there consolidation going on throughout the industry? Well, there has been consolidation elsewhere for some time. So, I mean, if you go look at Italy, if you go back a decade, uh, there were many more banks than there are now. So the two biggest, Unicredit and Intesa San Paolo, are sort of rolling up of lots of various other banks. Spain, probably as a post-crisis example, that's a better one. The number of banks has gone from all... 55 to about a dozen. Elsewhere, there's still room for within-country consolidation. Besides consolidation, is there any sign that the banks have a path out of this morass? Oh, yeah. I mean, if if you look at banks across the Eurozone, it's not as if they're all terrible. I mean, that's the thing. It's not as if banks can just sort of throw up their hands and say, well, it's all down to the European Central Bank and these terribly low interest rates and there's nothing we can do about it. That's not true. There are things policymakers could do to help. I mean, if the banking union were complete, in other words, if cross-border consolidation were easier, that would help. But nevertheless, there are things that banks can do for themselves. There's an ECB study that came out a few months ago which said that banks that have taken action to reduce their costs, their cost-income ratios. Banks that have invested heavily in information technology, that's you know, digitization, and banks that have sought sources of income other than interest, the margin between borrowing and lending, banks that have gone into fees and commissions, got to rely more heavily on those, or that have been more geographically diversified, those banks tend to have done better. And you have to say the ECB has a point. So it sounds as if bank shareholders may have some continued cause for concern, but at the moment at least depositors can rest easy. There's no banking crisis on the horizon, that's true. Banks are much better capitalised than they were before. So it's not as if the banking system is is terribly fragile. I don't think that's true at all. They they are much better capitalised than they were before. That, you could say, actually makes the banking system maybe less risky than it was before. And maybe investors should, for that reason, be be satisfied with lower returns on equity because you think there's a trade-off between risk and return. If it's a bit less risky, then maybe they should accept a bit less. That's actually quite a, quite a hard sell. I mean, if you look at Japan, where you've had this long, slow grind for you know, 20-odd years, and again, analysts will say the cost of equities come down a bit, but it's still sort of high single figures or 10. And Japanese banks have been similarly struggling with profitability. So it could be a, a long grind, but it, it doesn't feel as if it's crisis point, but probably could be and should be stronger than it is. Patrick, thanks very much. Thanks, Simon. And finally, New York City is now the world's third most congested metropolitan area, and the traffic jams are dragging on the economy. A report has estimated that if nothing is done, congestion will cost the city $100 billion over the next five years. And if you think your commute is bad, spare a thought for New Yorkers. Delayed subways and gridlocked streets cost the average commuter up to $1,900 a year. An ambitious report initiated by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is calling for greater regulation on lorries, tour buses and taxis, among other things. Rosemary Ward is our frustrated Northeast US correspondent based in New York. Morning, Rosemary. Good morning. So how did things get this bad in your city? Well, New York's success apparently has a lot to do with it. More cars, more commerce means more traffic and more clogged streets. Uh, coupled with that, the growth of for hire cars, on-demand car hires like Uber and Lyft, which has more than doubled since 2013, and they're helping to clog the streets too. Pedestrians are slowing traffic, 
more visitors are coming to the city. And the introduction of bike lanes also means fewer miles for cars to drive on. Of those various culprits you mentioned, what are seen as the the biggest culprit? What is seen as the most important thing to fix? It's two things. I think the growth of on-demand car hires is definitely a big one, but also the growth of e-commerce. So all those Amazon packages that arrive on people's doorsteps means more lorries on the road. So if we can get everyone else off the road so Amazon can make their deliveries and Uber can drop off their passengers, it would help declog the streets. There's a joke this transport engineer told me this week. Should we walk or do we have time to take a cab? (laughs) Presumably fixing all this is going to cost a lot of money. How are they going to raise it? Well, yesterday, the state state legislature and the governor approved a budget and they're going to put it into the budget where they can allocate money to put cameras, sophisticated tracking systems so that we can implement congestion pricing. Of course, this isn't happening overnight. It's probably not going to be implemented for nearly two years. So it has a long it has a long way to go before we actually see any cameras on the streets tracking drivers. Congestion charging, of course, we've had in London for some years now, and I guess people have got used to it. But I remember the, the screams when it was first introduced because it was quite high. So presumably in New York, there's going to be quite a backlash against some of these proposals as well. I mean, not just from drivers, but from the Amazon delivery people and the people who depend on them. Well, actually, you'd be surprised. The likes of Uber and Amazon have been supporting congestion pricing because it'll speed up their journeys. The biggest objectors have actually been suburban politicians because they worry their constituents will bear the brunt of the of paying for these fees because most of them, a lot of them, I should say, drive into the city. Rosemary, thank you very much. I know it's only six in the morning your time, but I should probably let you start your commute to work. Exactly. It'll take at least an hour to get to Manhattan from here. <laughs> and that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.